Grey Eagle and His Five Brothers by Cornelius Matthews. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Grey Eagle and His Five Brothers There were six falcons living in a nest, five of whom were still too young to fly, when it so happened that both the parent birds were shot in one day. The younger brood waited anxiously for their return, but night came, and they were left without parents, and without food. Grey Eagle, the eldest, and the only one whose feathers had become stout enough to enable him to leave the nest, took his place as the head of the family, and assumed the duty of stifling their cries and providing the little household with food, in which he was very successful. But, after a short time had passed, by an unlucky mischance, while out on a foraging excursion, he got one of his wings broken. This was the more to be regretted, as the season had arrived when they were soon to go to a southern country to pass the winter, and the children were only waiting to become a little stronger and more expert on the wing to set out on the journey. Finding that their elder brother did not return, they resolved to go in search of him. After beating up and down the country for the better part of a whole day, they at last found him, sorely wounded and unable to fly, lodged in the upper branches of a sycamore tree. "'Brothers,' said Grey Eagle, as soon as they were gathered around, and questioned him as to the extent of his injuries, "'an accident has befallen me, but let this not prevent your going to a warmer climate. Winter is rapidly approaching, and you cannot remain here. It is better that I alone should die than for you all to suffer on my account.' "'No, no,' they replied with one voice. "'We will not forsake you. "'We will share your sufferings. "'We will abandon our journey, "'and take care of you as you did of us "'before we were able to take care of ourselves. "'If the chill climate kills you, it shall kill us. "'Do you think we can so soon forget your brotherly care, "'which is equal to father's, and even a mother's kindness? "'Whether you live or die, we shall live or die with you.' "'They sought out a hollow tree to winter in, and contrived to carry their wounded nestmate thither. And before the rigor of the season had set in, they had, by diligence and economy, stored up food enough to carry them through the winter months. To make the provisions they had laid in last the better, it was agreed among them that two of their number should go south, leaving the other three to watch over, feed, and protect their wounded brother. The travelers set forth, sorry to leave home but resolved that the first promise of spring should bring them back again. At the close of day, the three brothers who remained, mounting to the very peak of the tree, and bearing Grey Eagle in their arms, watched them as they vanished away southward, till their forms blended in with the air and were wholly lost to sight. The next business was to set the household in order, and this, with the judicious direction of Grey Eagle, who was propped up on a snug fork, with soft cushions of dry moss, they speedily accomplished. One of the sisters, for there were two of these, took upon herself the charge of nursing Grey Eagle, preparing his food, bringing him water, and changing his pillow when he grew tired of one position. She also looked to it that the house itself was kept in a tidy condition, and that the pantry was supplied with food. The second brother was assigned the duty of physician, and he was to prescribe such herbs and other medicines as the state of the health of Grey Eagle seemed to require. As the second brother had no other invalid on his visiting list, he devoted the time not given to the cure of his patient to the killing of game wherewith to stock the housekeeper's larder, 
so that, whenever he did, he was always busy in the line of professional duty, killing or curing. On his hunting excursions, Dr. Falcon carried with him his younger brother, who, being a foolish young fellow and inexperienced in the ways of the world, was not thought safe to trust alone. In due time, what with good nursing and good feeding and good air, Grey Eagle recovered from his wound, and he repaid the kindness of his brothers by giving them such advice and instruction in the art of hunting as his age and experience qualified him to impart. As spring advanced, they began to look about for the means of replenishing their storehouse, whose supplies were running low, and they were all quite successful in their quest except the youngest, whose name was Peepi, or the Pigeon Hawk, and who had of late began to set up for himself, being small and foolish and feather-headed, flying hither and yonder without any set purpose. It so happened that Peepi always came home, so to phrase it, with an empty game-bag, and his pinions terribly rumpled. At last Grey Eagle spoke to him, and demanded the cause of his ill luck. It is not my smallness nor weakness of body, Peepi answered, that prevents my bringing home provender as well as my brothers. I am all the time on the wing, hither and thither. I kill ducks and other birds every time I go out, but just as I get to the woods on my way home, I am met by a large cocoho, who robs me of my prey. And, added Peepi, with great energy, it is my settled opinion that the villain lies in wait for the very purpose of doing so. I have no doubt you are right, Brother Peepi, rejoined Grey Owl. I know this pirate. His name is White Owl, and now that I feel my strength fully recovered, I will go out with you to-morrow and help you look after this greedy bushranger. The next day they went forth in company, and arrived at a fine freshwater lake. Grey Eagle seated himself hard by, while Peepi started out and soon pounced upon a duck. Well done, thought his brother, who saw his success. But just as little Peepi was getting to land with his prize, up sailed a large white owl from a tree where he, too, had been watching, and laid claim to it. He was on the point of wrestling it from Peepi, when Grey Eagle, calling out to the intruder to desist, rushed up and, fixing his talons in both sides of the owl, without further introduction or ceremony, flew away with him. The little pigeon-hawk followed closely, with the duck under his wing, rejoiced and happy to think that he had something to carry home at last. He was naturally much vexed with the owl, and had no sooner delivered over the duck to his sister, the housekeeper, than he flew in the owl's face, and, venting an abundance of reproachful terms, would, in his passion, have torn the very eyes out of White Owl's head. Softly, Peepi, said Grey Eagle, stepping in between them. Don't be in such a huff, my little brother, nor exhibit so revengeful a temper. Do you not know that we are to forgive our enemies? White Owl, you may go, but let this be a lesson to you, not to play the tyrant over those who may chance to be weaker than yourself. So, after adding to this much more good advice, and telling him what kind of herbs would cure his wounds, Grey Eagle dismissed White Owl, and the four brothers and sisters sat down to supper. The next day, betimes in the morning, before the household had fairly rubbed the cobwebs out of the corners of their eyes, there came a knock at the front door, which was a grey branch that lay down before the hollow of the tree in which they lodged, and being called to come in, who should make their appearance but the two nestmates, who had just returned from the south, where they had been wintering. There was great rejoicing over their return, and now that they were all happily reunited, each one soon chose a mate 
and began to keep house in the woods for himself. Spring had now revisited the north. The cold winds had all blown themselves away. The ice had melted. The streams were open, and smiled as they looked at the blue skies once more, and the forests, far and wide in their green mantle, echoed every cheerful sound. But it is in vain that spring returns, and that the heart of nature is opened in bounty, if we are not thankful to the master of life, who has preserved us through the winter. Nor does that man answer the end for which he was made, who does not show a kind and charitable feeling to all who are in want or sickness, especially to his blood relations. The love and harmony of Grey Eagle and his brothers continued. They never forgot each other. Every week, on the fourth afternoon of the week, for that was the time when they had found their wounded elder brother, they had a meeting in the hollow of the old sycamore tree, when they talked over family matters and advised with each other, as brothers should, about their affairs. End of Grey Eagle and His Five Brothers by Cornelius Matthews Read by David Lawrence, July 2010, in Brampton, Ontario. The History of Five Little Pigs From My First Picture Book by Joseph Martin Cronheim This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. THE HISTORY OF FIVE LITTLE PIGS THE LITTLE PIG WHO WENT TO MARKET There was once a family of five little pigs, and Mrs. Pig, their mother, loved them all very dearly. Some of these little pigs were very good, and took a great deal of trouble to please her. The eldest pig was so active and useful that he was called Mr. Pig. One day he went to market with his cart full of vegetables, but Rusty, the donkey, began to show his bad temper before he had gone very far on the road. All the coaxing and whipping would not make him move. So Mr. Pig took him out of the shafts, and, being very strong, drew the cart to market himself. When he got there, all the other pigs began to laugh, but they did not laugh so loudly when Mr. Pig told them all his struggles on the road. Mr. Pig lost no time in selling his vegetables, and very soon after, Rusty came trotting into the marketplace, and as he now seemed willing to take his place in the cart, Mr. Pig started for home without delay. When he got there, he told Mrs. Pig his story, and she called him her best and most worthy son. THE LITTLE PIG WHO STAYED AT HOME This little pig very much wanted to go with his brother, but as he was so mischievous that he could not be trusted far away, his mother made him stay at home, and told him to keep a good fire while she went out to the miller's to buy some flour. But as soon as he was alone, instead of learning his lessons, he began to tease the poor cat. Then he got the bellows, and cut the leather with a knife, so as to see where the wind came from, and when he could not find this out, he began to cry. After this, 
he broke all his brother's toys he forced the drumstick through the drum he tore off the tail from the kite and then pulled off the horse's head and then he went to the cupboard and ate the jam when mrs pig came home she sat down by the fire and being very tired she soon fell asleep no sooner had she done so than this bad little pig got a long handkerchief and tied her in her chair but soon she awoke and found out all the mischief that he had been doing she saw at once the damage that he had done to his brother's playthings so she quickly brought out her thickest and heaviest birch and gave this naughty little pig such a beating as he did not forget for a long time the little pig who had roast beef this little pig was a very good and careful fellow he gave his mother scarcely any trouble and always took a pleasure in doing all she bade him here you see him sitting down with clean hands and face to some nice roast beef while his brother the idle pig who is standing on a stool in the corner with the dunce's cap on has none he sat down and quietly learned his lesson and asked his mother to hear him repeat it and this he did so well that mrs pig stroked him on the ears and forehead and called him a good little pig after this he asked her to allow him to help her make tea he brought everything she wanted and lifted off the kettle from the fire without spilling a drop either on his toes or the carpet by and by he went out after asking his mother's leave to play with his hoop he had not gone far when he saw an old blind pig who with his hat in his hand was crying at the loss of his dog so he put his hand in his pocket and found a halfpenny which he gave to the poor old pig it was for such thoughtful conduct as this that his mother often gave this little pig roast beef we now come to the little pig who had none the little pig who had none this was a most obstinate and wilful little pig his mother had set him to learn his lesson but no sooner had she gone out into the garden than he tore his book into pieces when his mother came back he ran off into the streets to play with other idle little pigs like himself after this he quarrelled with one of the pigs and got a sound thrashing being afraid to go home he stayed out till it was quite dark and caught a severe cold so he was taken home and put to bed and had to take a lot of nasty physic the little pig who cried wee wee all the way home this little pig went fishing now he had been told not to go into farmer grumpy's grounds who did not allow anyone to fish in his part of the river but in spite of what he had been told this foolish little pig went there he soon caught a very large fish and while he was trying to carry it home farmer grumpy came running along with his great whip he quickly dropped the fish 
but the farmer caught him, and as he laid his whip over his back for some time, the little pig ran off, crying, Wee, 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 all the way home. End of The History of Five Little Pigs From My First Picture Book by Joseph Martin Cronheim Read by Denny Sayers Book of Matthew, Chapter 5 This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Book of Matthew, Chapter 5 And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set down, his disciples came unto him. And opening his mouth, he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when they shall revile you, and persecute you, and speak all that is evil against you untruly for my sake. Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is very great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt lose its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is good for nothing any more but to be cast out and to be trodden on by men. You are the light of the world. A city seated on a mountain cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but upon a candlestick, that it may shine to all that are in the house. So let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I am come to destroy the law, or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For amen I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall not pass of the law, till all be fulfilled. He therefore that shall break one of these least commandments, and shall so teach men, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But he that shall do and teach, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your justice abound more than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to them of old, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, and whosoever shall say Thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. If therefore thou offer thy gift at the altar, and there thou remember that thy brother hath anything against thee. Leave there thy offering before the altar, and go first to be reconciled to thy brother, and then, coming thou shalt offer thy gift. Be at agreement with thy adversary betimes, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest perhaps the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Amen, I say to thee, 
thou shalt not go out from thence till thou repay the last farthing. You have heard that it was said to them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall look on a woman to lust after her, hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if thy right eye scandalize thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is expedient for thee that one of thy members should perish, rather than thy whole body be cast into hell. And if thy right hand scandalize thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is expedient for thee that one of thy members should perish, rather than that thy whole body go into hell. And it hath been said, Whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a bill of divorce. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, excepting the cause of fornication, maketh her commit adultery. And he that shall marry her that is put away, committeth adultery. Again you have heard that it was said to them of old, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform thy oath to the Lord. But I say unto you not to swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your speech be yea, yea, no, no, and that which is over and above these is of evil. You have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you not to resist evil, but if one strike thee on thy right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if a man will contend with thee in judgment, and take away thy coat, let go thy cloak also unto him. And whosoever will force thee one mile, go with him the other two. Give to him that asketh of thee, and from him that would borrow of thee turn not away. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that persecute and calumniate you that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven, who maketh his Son to rise upon the good and bad, and reigneth upon the just and the unjust. For if you love them that love you, what reward shall you have? Do not even the publicans this? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more? Do not also the heathens this? Be you therefore perfect, as also your heavenly Father is perfect. End of Book of Matthew, Chapter 5 Recording by James Christopher jxchristopher at yahoo.com Five Lives by Edward Roland Sill Read by Daryl Hamlin This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Five mites of monads dwelt in a round drop that twinkled on a leaf by a pool in the sun. To the naked eye they lived invisible, specks for a world of whom the empty shell of a mustard seed had been a hollow sky. One was a meditative monad called a sage, and, shrinking all his mind within, he thought, Tradition, handed down for hours and hours, tells that our globe, this quivering crystal world, is slowly dying. What if, seconds hence, when I am very old, yon shimmering doom comes drawing down and down till all things end?
Then, with a wizened smirk, he proudly felt no other mote of God had ever gained such giant grasp of universal truth. One was a transcendental monad, thin and long and slim of mind, and thus he mused, O oh, vast, unfathomable monad souls, made in the image, a hoarse frog croaks from the pool. Hark! Twas some god, voicing his glorious thought in thunder music. Yea, we hear their voice, and we may guess their minds from ours, their work. Some taste they have like ours, some tendency to wriggle about and munch a trace of scum. He floated up on a pinpoint bubble of gas that burst, pricked by the air, and he was gone. One was a barren-minded monad, called a positivist, and he knew positively there was no other world beyond this certain drop. Prove me another. Let the dreamers dream of their faint gleams and noises from without, and higher and lower. Life is life enough. Then swaggering half a hair's breadth hungrily, he seized upon an atom of bug and fed. One was a tattered monad called a poet, and with a shrill voice ecstatic thus he sang, O oh, little female monad's lips, O oh, little female monad's eyes, Ah, the little, little female, female monad. The last was the strong-minded monadess, who dashed amid the infusoria, danced high and low, and wildly spun and dove, till the dizzy others held their breath to see. But while they lived their wondrous little lives, Ionian moments had gone wheeling by. The burning drop had shrunk with fearful speed. A glistening film. T'was gone. The leaf was dry. The little ghost of an inaudible squeak was lost to the frog that goggled from his stone, who, at the huge slow tread of a thoughtful ox coming to drink, stirred sideways fatly, plunged, launched backward twice, and all the pool was still. End of Five Lives by Edward Rowland Still Introduction to The Five Senses of Man by Julius Bernstein This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Five Senses of Man Introduction in the animal kingdom a number of organs have been developed which possess the property of making each organism acquainted with occurrences in the outer world and which are therefore called the sensory organs they are found in their highest perfection in man whose mental power surpasses in the same degree that of the rest of organized beings Every sensory organ may be shown to be anatomically connected with the nervous system by means of nerve trunks and nerve fibers. Touch, sight, hearing, smell, and taste are inconceivable without the presence of a nervous system, even if the sensory organs were in their present full development. An eye, of which the optic nerve has been destroyed, can present to us no picture of the outer world. An ear, of which the auditory nerve has been severed, conducts no sound to us. An arm, of which the nerve is injured, can feel nothing. 
such an eye may have all the appearance of a sound one it may receive the rays of light and form an image of objects on its background and nevertheless no sensation can be produced for the connection with the brain the centre of the nervous system is wanting the case is the same with the deaf ear and with the arm devoid of feeling the sensory organs are therefore only instruments of the mind which has its seat in the brain and by means of nerves makes use of these instruments to obtain information of external objects the forces which operate in the outer world namely light heat sound motion and chemical affinity produce in the sensory organs an irritation of the sensory nerves connected with them and these convey the irritation which is there received throughout their entire length to the brain each organ of sense has its own specific irritation by which it is excited the terminations of the optic nerve in the eye can only be excited by light waves not by sound waves and the latter can only excite the terminations of the auditory nerve in the ear for the tactile nerves of the skin mechanical pressure and heat are specific excitements for the nerves of taste and smell some chemical substance is necessary the sensation itself evidently first takes place in the brain the sensation of light does not take place in the eye where there is only an impression of light upon the expanded surface of the optic nerve the sensation of light cannot however take place in the optic nerve itself for it merely conveys the fact of the existence of the irritation to the brain the sensation of light a process to us most obscure begins rather in the brain which is irritated by the excited nerve and since we can follow the optic nerve up to its origin in the brain we therefore conclude that this process occurs in the central organ of the optic nerve the eye therefore is nothing more than an optical instrument which receives the light and the optic nerve nothing more than an apparatus for conveying the intelligence of an irritation to the brain it has been observed in operations that if the optic nerve is either torn crushed or even severed at the moment when it is broken a strong flash of light is observed by the patient this light is not real for it is only perceived by the person under operation the sensation of light arises merely from the mechanical irritation of the optic nerve and from the extension of the irritation to the nerve centre where it awakens the process of the sensation of light just as if the excitement had proceeded from the eye in such cases the sensation of light occurs without any external objective light and always takes place if the optic nerve is irritated in any way whatever by those influences which have an irritating effect on other nerves such as electricity heat and chemical action objective light that is to say the light waves of the ether takes no part in this action it may therefore be accepted as a fact that in ordinary vision no trace of the light which enters the eye finds its way to the brain but only a process of irritation peculiar to the nerve and which can be produced in the nerve trunk by pressure electricity heat and chemical action just as well as in the eye by light in whatever way the irritation may have been caused the process in the optic nerve is always the same and the action on the nerve centre always produces the sensation of light 
it must be exactly the same with the other sensory organs and their nerves a sound does not extend beyond the end of the auditory nerve and none of it is conveyed to the brain by the auditory nerve the nerve which is excited at its termination communicates its condition to the brain and causes in the center of the auditory nerve the sensation of sound the sensation of sound therefore can take place without a sound wave reaching the ear if only the auditory nerve is in any way excited whether it be by pressure rupture electricity etc thus the irritation which in the center of the auditory nerve causes the sensation of sound always takes place in the nerve it is clear that these ideas must be extended to the other sensory organs of taste smell and touch all sensory nerves are only intended to communicate the fact of an excitement of the nerve from the terminations of the nerves to their center in the brain the sensorium this irritation of the nerve is by no means similar to the first irritation it is neither light nor sound nor is it pressure nor warmth nor a current of liquid which can be tasted nor of a gas which can be smelt it is rather a process of a peculiar kind about which we may conclude that in all the nerves of the body the irritation is one and the same since in the muscular as well as in the sensory nerves it exhibits the same phenomena and obeys the same laws the nerve again can no more appropriate a trace of the excitement than possess a trace of sensation if we have at any place divided a sensitive nerve we can excite the divided part as strongly as we please but all sensation is gone the central nerve trunk however is sensitive throughout sensation can only take place in the sensorium the excited condition of the sensorium is the material fact which corresponds to a sensation and it is unnecessary that the sensory nerve concerned should have caused the irritation for in dreams we have distinct sensations which are not caused by the specific excitement of the nerves but only by the action of some internal excitement within the sensorium abnormal excitements also which occur in the case of lunatics or abnormal states of the blood in febrile diseases cause subjective perceptions which are called phantoms and hallucinations from these remarks it is clear that we really have no sensations of objects of the external world themselves but only of the changes which occur in the sensorium how is it then that we nevertheless transfer our inward sensations to the outer world that we consider as external to ourselves all that we see hear or feel this fact which to the healthy human mind seems so simple and natural requires consideration the above question can be answered shortly as follows from our very birth we learn by experience how to explain the sensations of our senses and by a thousand experiments which we make with eye ear and limbs in everyday life arrive at the conclusion that the object of sensations that is their ultimate cause is external to ourselves the newly born child of course experiences sensations the light which enters its eye acts indisputably on its brain for the pupil contracts under the influence of the light and this cannot occur without the cooperation of the centre of the optic nerve in the brain 
the sensation is however only an internal one like the feeling of satiety or of hunger it is of course not yet recognized as proceeding from external objects we observe indeed that a child gradually begins by moving eye and head to fix the object namely to bring the eye into such a position that the image of the object may fall upon the point of most distinct vision in the centre of the retina yet in this stage of development the transference of what is seen to the outer world has not yet taken place the fixing of the eye upon objects does not take place suddenly but is gradually developed from a spasmodic attempt to move the eye which perhaps is caused by the irritative effect of the light and if during this motion the point of distinct vision chances to fall upon an object which attracts attention by its brightness color or motion then by a repetition of this process the child will gradually learn by experiment to repeat the required motion at will the use of the sense of touch is contemporaneous with the use of vision the sensation of touch also is not recognized at first as proceeding from external objects but is perhaps only perceived as an inward sensation and as a check to movement now the hand the most important organ of touch is one of the objects which are seen at once and since it has the property of great mobility in space the eye will very soon see the hand moving and touching and many sensations caused by it will be simultaneously perceived when the hand touches an object the eye sees not only the object but the hand itself also and when the hand is in motion we perceive simultaneously the inward sensation of movement of the muscles that is the existence of the sensation of touch and by means of our sense of sight the visible motion of the hand and the object the simultaneous occurrence of the sensations of touch and sight gradually leads to the impression that an object perceived by both senses is external to ourselves to this step of knowledge there belongs of course a logical conclusion the existence of which remains a problem of mental life but which is carried out unconsciously and certainly only formed by degrees it consists in this that if the two sensations of touch and sight always take place simultaneously they must have one and the same cause and therefore that the object which is seen and touched must be one and the same still one such logical conclusion is not sufficient to enable us to recognize objects as external to ourselves a second follows which certainly may appear very scientific but is not so since it is formed unconsciously the two simultaneous sensations of touch and sight are two sensations of dissimilar quality which have their nervous centers in different parts of the brain if the cause of the sensations be found within the organs which perceive them then it must be present at the same time in those of touch and sight which are both different in constitution that is to say it must be a double one however according to the first logical conclusion the cause is single not double therefore it is not an internal but an external cause the simultaneous action of the sensations of touch and sight is in fact for the human mind an important source of knowledge in the external world 
yet we must not on this account conclude that touch alone without the assistance of sight as in the case of persons born blind cannot lead to knowledge it is probable that the sense of touch alone might enable us to distinguish our own body and external objects sooner than vision for the act of touching our body with our hand calls forth a double sensation of touch one through the hand and the other through the part of the skin touched touching an external object causes only a single sensation of touch through the tactile organ upon this physiological basis an idea of the external world might be formed although it would be difficult to analyze such a mental act so as to arrive at a simple logical conclusion if once the idea is formed that the object touched belongs to the external world the education of the sense of sight will take place rapidly the simultaneous and coincident sensations of sight and touch the simultaneous perception of the motion by the eye and the sensation of it by the hand the commencement of the sensation of touch as soon as the eye sees that the object is moved by the hand all lead to the conviction that the cause of both sensations must be one and the same and that if the sensation of touch is recognized as external to ourselves this must also be the case with the sensation of sight the sensations of the senses must be distinguished from other kinds of sensations to which the body is subject which are termed common sensations with them may be classed especially the sensation of pain which is spread almost over the entire body the characteristic distinction between these common sensations and the sensations of the senses is that by the latter we gain knowledge of the occurrences and objects which belong to the external world and that we refer the sensations which they produce to external objects whilst by the former we only feel conditions of our own body the limit between the sensations of touch and pain may be illustrated by the following example given by ernst heinrich weber if we place the edge of a sharp knife on the skin we feel the edge by means of our sense of touch we perceive a sensation and refer it to the object which has caused it but as soon as we cut the skin with the knife we feel pain a feeling which we no longer refer to the cutting knife but which we feel within ourselves and which communicates to us the fact of a change of condition in our own body by the sensation of pain we are neither able to recognize the object which caused it nor its nature the sensations of the senses therefore appear to be of a higher kind than the common sensations the general sensibility of the body is indeed the general ground from which the sensation of the senses also spring but they are distinguished from it by a more complete perfection since they are produced by the action of the forces of the external world upon delicately constructed organs on the surface of the body and the mind is thereby brought into immediate communication with the external world end of introduction to the five senses of man by julius bernstein read by avai in july 2010《At Five O'Clock in the Morning》by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fate, in the guise of Mrs. Emery dropping a milk can on the platform under his open window, awakened Murray that morning. 
Had not Mrs. Emery dropped that can, he would have slumbered peacefully until his usual hour for rising, a late one, be it admitted, for of all the boarders at Sweetbriar Cottage, Murray was the most irregular in his habits. When a young man, Mrs. Emery was wont to remark sagely and a trifle severely, prowls about that pond half of the night a chasin' of things what he calls moonlight effects, it ain't to be wondered at that he's sleepy in the morning, and it ain't the convenientest thing, nother in no ways, to keep the breakfast table set till the farm folks are thinking of dinner. But them artist men are not like other people. Say what you will, an allowance has to be made for them. And I must say that I like some real well and approves of em every other way. If Mr. Murray had slept late that morning, well, he shudders yet over that if. But after said fate saw to it that he woke when the hour of destiny and the milk can struck, and having awakened he found he could not go to sleep again. It suddenly occurred to him that he had never seen a sunrise on the pond. Doubtless it would be very lovely down there in those dewy meadows at such a primitive hour. He decided to get up and see what the world looked like in the young daylight. He scowled at a letter lying on his dressing-table and thrust it into his pocket that it might be out of sight. He had written it the night before, and the writing of it was going to cost him several things, a prospective million among others. So it is hardly to be wondered at if the sight of it did not reconcile him to the joys of early rising. "'Dear life and heart!' exclaimed Mrs. Emery, pausing in the act of scalding a milk-can when Murray emerged from a side door. "'What on earth is the matter, Mr. Murray? You ain't sick now, surely?' I told you them pond fogs would poison after night. If you've gone and got— Nothing is the matter, dear lady, interrupted Murray. And I haven't gone and got anything except an acute attack of early rising, which is not in the least likely to become chronic. But at what hour of the night did you get up, you wonderful woman? Or rather, do you ever go to bed at all? Here is the sun only beginning to rise, and positively, yes, you have all your cows milked. Mrs. Emery purred with delight. Folks has fourteen cows to milk has to rise betimes, she answered with proud humility. Laws, I don't complain. I've lots of help with the milking. How Mrs. Palmer manages, I really cannot comprehend, or rather, how she has managed. I suppose she'll be all right now since her niece came last night. I saw her posting to the pond pasture not ten minutes ago. She'll have to milk all them seven cows herself. But dear life and heart, here I'd be palavering away and not a bite of breakfast ready for you. I don't want any breakfast until the regular time for it, assured Murray. I'm going down to the pond to see the sunrise. Now don't you go and get caught in the mash, anxiously called Mrs. Emery, as she never failed to do when she saw him starting for the pond. Nobody ever had got caught in the marsh, but Mrs. Emery lived in a chronic state of fear lest someone should. And if you once get stuck in that black mud, you'd be sucked right down and never seen or heard tale of again till the day of judgment, like Adam Palmer's cow, she was wont to warn her boarders. Murray sought his favorite spot for pond-dreaming, a bloomy corner of the pasture that ran down into the blue water, with the dump of leafy maples on the left. He was very glad he had risen early. A miracle was being worked before his very eyes. The world was in a flush and tremor of maiden loveliness, instinct with all the marvelous fleeting charm of girlhood and spring and young morning. Overhead the sky was a vast high-sprung arch of unstained crystal. Down over the sand-dunes where the pond ran out into the sea was a great arc of primrose smitten through with auroral crimsonings. Beneath it the pond-waters shimmered with a hundred fairy hues, but just before him they were clear as a flawless mirror. The fields around him glistened with dews, and a little wandering wind, blowing lightly from some bourne in the hills, strayed down over the slopes, bringing with it an unimaginable odor and freshness, and fluttered over the pond, leaving a little path of dancing silver ripples across the mirror-glory of the water. Birds were singing in the beech woods over on Orchard Knob Farm, answering to each other from shore to shore until the very air was tremulous with the elfin music of this wonderful midsummer dawn. 
I will get up at sunrise every morning of my life hereafter, exclaimed Murray rapturously, not meaning a syllable of it, but devoutly believing he did. Just as the fiery disk of the sun peered over the sand dunes, Murray heard music that was not of the birds. It was a girl's voice singing beyond the maples to his left, a clear, sweet voice, blithely trilling out the old-fashioned song, Five O'Clock in the Morning. Mrs. Palmer's niece! Murray sprang to his feet and tiptoed cautiously through the maples. He had heard so much from Mrs. Palmer about her niece that he felt reasonably well acquainted with her. Moreover, Mrs. Palmer had assured him that Molly was a very pretty girl. Now a pretty girl milking cows at sunrise in the meadows sounded well. Mrs. Palmer had not overrated her niece's beauty. Murray said so to himself with a little whistle of amazement as he leaned unseen on the pasture fence and looked at the girl who was milking a placid jersey less than ten yards away from him. Murray's artistic instinct responded to the whole scene with a thrill of satisfaction. He could see only her profile, but that was perfect, and the coloring of the oval cheek and the beautiful curve of the chin were something to adore. Her hair, ruffled into lovable little ringlets by the morning wind, was coiled in glistening chestnut masses high in her bare head, and her arms, bare to the elbow, were as white as marble. Presently she began to sing again, and this time Murray joined in. She half rose from her milking stool and cast a startled glance at the maples. Then she dropped back again and began to milk determinedly, but Murray could have sworn that he saw a demure smile hovering about her lips. That and the revelation of her full face decided him. He sprang over the fence and sauntered across the intervening space of lush clover blossoms. "'Good morning,' he said coolly. He had forgotten her other name, and it did not matter. At five o'clock in the morning people who met in dewy clover fields might disregard the conventionalities. "'Isn't it rather a large contract for you to be milking seven cows all alone? May I help you?' Molly looked up at him over her shoulder. She had glorious gray eyes. Her face was serene and undisturbed. "'Can you milk?' she asked. "'Unlikely as it may seem, I can,' said Murray. "'I've never confessed it to Mrs. Emery, because I was afraid she would inveigle me into milking her fourteen cows. But I don't mind helping you. I learned to milk when I was a shaver on my vacations at a grandfatherly farm. May I have that extra pail?' Murray captured a milking stool and rounded up another jersey. Before sitting down, he seemed struck with an idea. "'My name is Arnold Murray. I board at Sweetbriar Cottage, next farm to Orchard Knob. That makes us near neighbors.' "'I suppose it does,' said Molly. Murray mentally decided that her voice was the sweetest he had ever heard. He was glad he arranged his cow at such an angle that he could study her profile. It was amazing that Mrs. Palmer's niece should have such a profile. It looked as if centuries of fine breeding were responsible for it. "'What a morning!' he said enthusiastically. It harks back to the days when earth was young. They must have had just such mornings as this in Eden. Do you always get up so early? asked Molly practically. Always, said Murray without a blush. Then, but no, that is a fib, and I cannot tell fibs to you. The truth is your tribute. I never get up early. It was fate that roused me and brought me here this morning. The morning is a miracle, and you, I might suppose you were born of the sunrise, if Mrs. Palmer hadn't told me all about you. What did she tell you about me? asked Molly, changing cows. Murray discovered that she was tall, and that the big blue-print apron shrouded a singularly graceful figure. She said you were the best-looking girl in Bruce County. I've seen very few of the girls in Bruce County, but I know she is right. That compliment is not nearly so pretty as the sunrise one, said Molly reflectively. Mrs. Palmer has told me things about you, she added. Curiosity knows no gender, hinted Murray. She said you were good-looking and lazy and different from other people. "'All compliments,' said Murray, in a gratified tone. "'Lazy?' "'Certainly. Laziness is a virtue in these strenuous days. I was not born with it, but I have painstakingly acquired it, and I am proud of my success. I have time to enjoy life.' 
I think that I like you, said Molly. You have the merit of being able to enter into a situation, he assured her. When the last jersey was milked, they carried the pails down to the spring where the creamers were sunk and strained the milk into them. Murray washed the pails, and Molly wiped them and set them in a gleaming row on the shelf under a big maple. Thank you, she said. You are not going yet, said Murray resolutely. The time I saved you in milking three cows belongs to me. We'll spend it in the walk along the pond shore. I'll show you a path I've discovered under the beeches. It is just wide enough for two. Come. He took her hand and drew her through the copse into a green lane, where the ferns grew thickly on either side and the pond water splashed dreamily below them. He kept her hand in his as they went down the path, and she did not try to withdraw it. About them was the great pure silence of the morning, faintly threaded with caressing sounds, croon of birds, gurgle of waters, sough of the wind. The spirit of youth and love hovered over them, and they spoke no word. When they finally came out on a little green nook swimming in early sunshine and arched over by maples, with the wide shimmer of the pond before it and the gold dust of blossoms over the grass, the girl drew a long breath of delight. "'It is a morning left over from Eden, isn't it?' said Murray. "'Yes,' said Molly softly. Murray bent toward her. "'You are Eve,' he said. "'You were the only woman in the world, for me. Adam must have told Eve just what he thought about her the first time he saw her. There were no conventionalities in Eden, and people could not have taken long to make up their minds. We're in Eden just now. One can say what he thinks in Eden without being ridiculous. "'You were divinely fair, Eve.' Your eyes are of stars of the morning. Your cheek has the flush it stole from the sunrise. Your lips are redder than the roses of paradise. And I love you, Eve. Molly lowered her eyes, and the long fringe of her lashes lay in a burnished semicircle on her cheek. I think, she said slowly, that it must have been very delightful in Eden. But we're not really there, you know. We're only playing that we are. And it is time for me to go back. I must get the breakfast. That sounds too prosaic for paradise. Murray bent still closer. Before we remember that we are only playing at paradise, will you kiss me, dear Eve? You are very audacious, said Molly coldly. We are in Eden yet, he urged. That makes all the difference. Well, said Molly, and Murray kissed her. They had passed back over the fern path and were in the pasture before either spoke again. Then Murray said, We have left Eden behind, but we can always return there when we will. And although we are only playing at paradise, I was not playing at love. I meant all I said, Molly. "'Have you meant it often?' asked Molly significantly. "'I never meant it, or even played at it before,' he answered. "'I did at one time contemplate the possibility of playing at it, "'but that was long ago, as long ago as last night. "'I'm glad to the core of my soul that I decided against it before I met you, dear Eve. "'I have the letter of decision in my coat pocket this moment. "'I mean to mail it this afternoon.' "'Curiosity knows no gender,' quoted Molly. "'Then, to satisfy your curiosity, I must bore you with some personal history.' My parents died when I was a little chap, and my uncle brought me up. He has been immensely good to me, but he is a bit of a tyrant. Recently he picked out a wife for me, the daughter of an old sweetheart of his. I have never even seen her, but she has arrived in town on a visit to some relatives there. Uncle Dick wrote to me to return home at once and pay my court to the lady. I protested. He wrote again, a letter, short and the reverse of sweet. If I refused to do my best to win Miss Mannering, he would disown me, never speak to me again, cut me off with a quarter. Uncle always means what he says. That is one of our family traits, you understand. I spent some miserable, undecided days. It was not the threat of disinheritance that worried me, although when you have been brought up to regard yourself as a prospective millionaire, it's rather difficult to adjust your vision to a pauper focus. But it was the thought of alienating Uncle Dick. I love the dear, determined old chap like a father, but last night my guardian angel was with me, and I decided to remain my own man. 
so I wrote to Uncle Dick, respectfully but firmly declining to become a candidate for Miss Mannering's hand. But you've never seen her, said Molly. She may be almost charming. If she be not fair to me, what care I how fair she be, quoted Murray. As you say, she may be almost charming, but she is not Eve. She is merely one of a million other women, as far as I'm concerned. Don't let's talk of her. Let us talk only of ourselves. There is nothing else that is half so interesting. And will your uncle really cast you off? asked Molly. Not a doubt of it. What will you do? Work, dear Eve. My carefully acquired laziness must be thrown to the winds, and I shall work. That is the rule outside of Eden. Don't worry. I've painted pictures that have actually been sold. I'll make a living for us somehow. Us? Of course. You are engaged to me. I am not, said Molly indignantly. Molly, Molly, after that kiss, fie, fie. You are very absurd, said Molly. But your absurdity has been amusing. I have, yes, positively, I have enjoyed your Eden comedy, but now you must not come any further with me. My aunt might not approve. Here is my path to Orchard Knob Farmhouse. There, I presume, is yours to Sweetbriar Cottage. Good morning. I'm coming over to see you this afternoon, said Murray coolly, but you needn't be afraid. I will not tell tales out of Eden. I'll be a hypocrite and pretend to Mrs. Palmer that we have never met before, but you and I will know and remember. Now you may go. I reserve to myself the privilege of standing here and watching you out of sight. That afternoon, Murray strolled over to Orchard Knob, going into the kitchen without knocking, as was the habit in that free and easy world. Mrs. Palmer was lying on the lounge with a pungent handkerchief bound around her head, but keeping a vigilant eye on a very pretty, very plump, brown-eyed girl who was stirring a kettleful of cherry preserve on the range. "'Good afternoon, Mrs. Palmer,' said Murray, wondering where Molly was. "'I'm sorry to see that you look something like an invalid.' "'I have a raging, ramping headache,' said Mrs. Palmer solemnly. "'I had it all night, and I'm good for nothing.' "'Molly, you better take them cherries off. "'Mr. Murray, this is my niece, Molly Booth.' "'What?' said Murray explosively. "'Miss Molly Booth,' repeated Mrs. Palmer in a louder tone. Murray regained outward self-control and bowed to the blushing Molly. "'And what about Eve?' he thought helplessly. "'Who—what was she? "'Did I dream her? "'Was she a phantom of delight? "'No, no, phantoms don't melt cows. "'She was flesh and blood. "'No chilly nymph exhaling from the mist of the marsh "'could have given a kiss like that.' "'Molly has come to stay the rest of the summer with me,' said Mrs. Palmer. "'I hope to goodness my tribulations with hired girls is over at last. "'They have made a wreck of me.' Murray rapidly reflected. This development, he decided, released him from his promise to tell no tales. "'I met a young lady down in the pond pasture this morning,' he said deliberately. "'I talked with her for a few minutes. "'I supposed her to be your niece. "'Who was she?' "'Oh, that was Miss Mannering,' said Mrs. Palmer. "'What?' said Murray again. Mannering, door mannering, said Mrs. Palmer loudly, wondering if Mr. Murray were losing his hearing. She came here last night just to see me. I haven't seen her since she was a child of twelve. I used to be her nurse before I was married. I was that proud to think she thought it worth her while to look me up. And mind you, this morning when she found me crippled with a headache and not able to do a hand's turn, that girl, Mr. Murray, went and milked seven cows. Only four, murmured Murray, but Mrs. Palmer did not hear him. For me. Couldn't prevent her. She said she had learned to milk for one summer when she was in the country, and she did it. Then she got breakfast for the men. Molly didn't come till the ten o'clock train. Miss Mannering is as capable as if she had been riz on the farm. Where is she now? demanded Murray. Oh, she's gone. What? Gone! shouted Mrs. Palmer. Gone! She left on the train Molly come on. Gracious me, has the man gone crazy? He hasn't seemed like himself at all this afternoon. Murray had bolted madly out of the house and was striding down the lane. 
blind fool, unspeakable idiot that he had been, to take her for Mrs. Palmer's niece, that peerless creature with the calm acceptance of any situation, which marked the woman of the world with the fine appreciation and quickness of repartee that spoke of generations of culture, to imagine that she could be Molly Booth. He had been blind, besottedly blind, and now he had lost her. She would never forgive him. She had gone without a word or sign. As he reached the last curve of the lane where it looped about the apple trees, a plump figure came flying down the orchard slope. "'Mr. Murray! Mr. Murray!' Molly Booth called breathlessly. "'Will you please come here just a minute?' Murray crossed over to the paling rather grumpily. He did not want to talk with Molly Booth just then. Confound it! What did the girl want? Why was she looking so mysterious?' Molly produced a little square gray envelope from some feminine hiding place and handed it over the paling. "'She give me this at the station. Miss Mannering did,' she gasped, "'and asked me to give it to you without letting Aunt Emily Jane see. I couldn't get a chance when you was in, but as soon as you went I slipped out by the porch door and followed you. You went so fast I near died trying to head you off.' "'You dear little soul,' said Murray, suddenly radiant. "'It is too bad you have had to put yourself so out of breath on my account. But I am immensely obliged to you.' The next time your young man wants a trusty private messenger, just refer him to me. Get away with you, giggled Molly. I must get back for Aunt Emily Jane gets wind I'm gone. I hope there's good news in your girl's letter. My, but don't you look flat when Aunt said she'd went. Murray beamed at her idiotically, when she had vanished among the trees as he opened the letter. Dear Mr. Murray, it ran, your unblushing audacity of the morning deserves some punishment. I hereby punish you by prompt departure from Orchard Knob. Yet I do not dislike audacity, it sometimes, in some places, in some people. It is only from a sense of duty that I punish it in this case. And it was really pleasant in Eden. If you do not mail that letter, and if you still persist in your very absurd interpretation of the meaning of Eve's kiss, we may meet again in town. Until then I remain, very sincerely yours, Dora Lynn Mannering. Murray kissed the gray letter and put it tenderly away in his pocket. Then he took his letter to his uncle and tore it into tiny fragments. Finally he looked at his watch. If I hurry I can catch the afternoon train to town, he said. End of At Five O'Clock in the Morning by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read by Tim Ferreira Mother of Five by Bret Hart This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. She was a mother, and a rather exemplary one, of five children, although her own age was barely nine. Two of these children were twins, and she generally alluded to them as Mr. Amplack's children referring to an exceedingly respectable gentleman in the next settlement who, I have reason to believe, had never set eyes on her or them. The twins were quite naturally alike, having been in a previous state of existence two ninepins, and were still somewhat vague and inchoate below their low shoulders in their long clothes, but were also firm and globular about the head, and there were not wanting those who professed to see in this an unmistakable resemblance to their reputed father. The other children were dolls of various ages, sex, and condition, but the twins may be said to have been distinctly her own conception. Yet such was her admirable and impartial maternity that she never made any difference between them. The Amplax children was a description rather than a distinction. She was herself the motherless child of Robert Foulkes, 
a hard-working but somewhat improvident teamster on the express route between Big Bend and Reno. His daily avocation, when she was not actually with him in the wagon, led to an occasional dispersion of herself and her progeny along the road and at wayside stations between those places. But the family was generally collected together by rough but kindly hands already familiar with the handling of her children. I have a very vivid recollection of Jim Carter trampling into a saloon, after a five-mile walk through a snowdrift, with an Amplac twin in his pocket. "'Something ought to be done,' he growled, "'to make Miri a little more careful of them Amplac children. I picked one up out of the snow a mile beyond Big Bend.' "'God bless my soul,' said a casual passenger, looking up hastily. "'I didn't know Mr. Amplac was married.' Jim winked diabolically at us over his glass. "'No more did I,' he responded gloomily. "'But you can't tell anything about the ways of them respectable, psalm-singing jaybirds.' Having thus disposed of Amplac's character, later on, when he was alone with Mary, or Miri, as she chose to pronounce it, the rascal worked upon her feelings with an account of the infant Amplac's sufferings in the snowdrift, and its agonized whisperings for— Miri, Miri, until real tears stood in Mary's blue eyes. "'Let this be a lesson to you,' he concluded, drawing the nine-pin dexterously from his pocket, "'for it took nigh a quart of the best forty-rod whisky to bring that child to.' Not only did Mary firmly believe him, but for weeks afterwards Julian Amplach, this unhappy twin, was kept in a somnolent attitude in the cart and was believed to have contracted dissipated habits from the effects of this heroic treatment. Her numerous family was achieved in only two years, and succeeded her first child, which was brought from Sacramento at considerable expense by a Mr. William Dodd, also a teamster, on her seventh birthday. This, by one of those rare inventions known only to a child's vocabulary, she at once called misery probably a combination of Missy, as she thought herself was formerly termed by strangers, and Missouri, her native state. It was an excessively large doll at first, Mr. Dodd wishing to get the worth of his money, but time, and perhaps an excess of maternal care, remedied the defect, and it lost flesh and certain unemployed parts of its limbs very rapidly. It was further reduced in bulk by falling under the wagon, and having the whole train pass over it. But singularly enough, its greatest attenuation was in the head and shoulders, the complexion peeling off as a solid layer, followed by the disappearance of distinct strata of its extraordinary composition. This continued until the head and shoulders were much too small for even its reduced frame, and all the devices of childish millinery, a shawl secured with tacks and well hammered in, and a hat which tilted backward and forward, and never appeared at the same angle, failed to restore symmetry. Until one dreadful morning, after an imprudent bath, the whole upper structure disappeared, leaving two hideous iron prongs standing erect from the spinal column. Even an imaginative child like Mary could not accept this sort of thing as a head. Later in the day, Jack Roper, the blacksmith at the crossing, was concerned at the plaintive appearance before his forge of a little girl clad in a bright blue pinafore of the same colour as her eyes, 
carrying her monstrous offspring in her arms. Jack recognized her and instantly divined the situation. "'You haven't,' he suggested kindly, "'got another head at home? Something left over?' Mary shook her head sadly. Even her prolific maternity was not equal to the creation of children in detail. "'Nor anything like a head,' he persisted sympathetically. Mary's loving eyes filled with tears. "'No, nothing!' "'You couldn't,' he continued thoughtfully. "'Use her the other side up? We might get a fine pair of legs out of them irons,' he added, touching the two prongs with artistic suggestion. "'Now look here.' He was about to tilt the doll over when a small cry of feminine distress and a swift movement of a matronly little arm arrested the evident indiscretion. "'I see,' he said gravely. "'Well, you come here to-morrow, and we'll fix up something to work her.' Jack was thoughtful the rest of the day, more than usually impatient with certain stubborn mules to be shod, and even knocked off work an hour earlier to walk to Big Bend and a rival shop. But at the next morning, when the trustful and anxious mother appeared at the forge, she uttered a scream of delight. Jack had neatly joined a hollow iron globe, taken from the newel post of some old iron staircase railing, to the two prongs, and covered it with a coat of red fireproof paint. It was true that its complexion was rather high, and that it was inclined to be top-heavy, and that in the long run the other dolls suffered considerably by enforced association with this unyielding and implacable head and shoulders, but this did not diminish Mary's joy over her restored firstborn. Even its utter absence of features was no defect in a family where features were as evanescent as in hers, and the most ordinary student of evolution could see that the Amplac nine-pins were in legitimate succession to the globular-headed misery. For a time I think that Mary even preferred her to the others. Howbeit it was a pretty sight to see her, on a summer afternoon, sitting upon a wayside stump, her other children dutifully ranged around her, and the hard, unfeeling head of misery pressed deep down into her loving little heart as she swayed from side to side, crooning her plaintive lullaby. Small wonder that the bees took up the song and droned a slumberous accompaniment, or that high above her head the enormous pines, stirred through their depths by the soft Sierran air, or heaven knows what, let slip flickering lights and shadows to play over that cast-iron face, until the child, looking down upon it with the quick, transforming power of love, thought that it smiled. The two remaining members of the family were less distinctive. Gloriana, pronounced as two words, Glory-Anna, being the work of her father, who also named it, was simply a cylindrical roll of canvas wagon-covering, girt so as to define a neck and waist, with a rudely inked face, altogether a weak, pitiable, manlike invention. And Johnny, dear, alleged to be the representative of John Doremus, a young storekeeper who occasionally supplied Mary with gratuitous sweets. Mary never admitted this, and as we were all gentlemen along that road, we were blind to the suggestion. Johnny, dear, was originally a small plaster phrenological cast of a head and bust, begged from some shop window in the county town, 
with a body clearly constructed by Mary herself. It was an ominous fact that it was always dressed as a boy, and was distinctly the most human-looking of all her progeny. Indeed, in spite of the faculties that were legibly printed all over its smooth, white, hairless head, it was appallingly lifelike. Left sometimes by Mary astride of the branch of a wayside tree, horsemen had been known to dismount hurriedly and examine it, returning with a mystified smile, and it was on record that Yuba Bill had once pulled up the pioneer coach at the request of curious and imploring passengers, and then grimly installed Johnny Deer beside him on the box-seat, publicly delivering him to Mary at Big Bend, and to her wide-eyed confusion and the first blush we had ever seen on her round, chubby, sunburnt cheeks. It may seem strange that with her great popularity and her well-known maternal instincts, she had not been kept fully supplied with proper and more conventional dolls. But it was soon recognized that she did not care for them, left their waxen faces, rolling eyes, and abundant hair in ditches, or stripped them to help clothe the more extravagant creatures of her fancy. So it came that Johnny Deer's strictly classical profile looked out from under a girl's fashionable straw sailor hat, to the utter obliteration of his prominent intellectual faculties. The Amplac twins wore bonnets on their nine-pins heads, and even an attempt was made to fit a flaxen scalp on the iron-headed misery. But her dolls were always a creation of her own, her affection for them increasing with the demand upon her imagination. This may seem somewhat inconsistent with her habit of occasionally abandoning them in the woods or in the ditches but she had an unbounded confidence in the kindly maternity of nature, and trusted her children to the breast of the great mother, as freely as she did herself in her own motherlessness. And this confidence was rarely betrayed. Rats, mice, snails, wild cats, panther, and bear never touched her lost waifs. Even the elements were kindly. An amplac twin buried under a snowdrift in high altitudes reappeared smilingly in the spring in all its wooden and painted integrity. We were all pantheists then, and believed this implicitly. It was only when exposed to the milder forces of civilization that Mary had anything to fear. Yet even then, when Patsy O'Connor's domestic goat had once tried to sample the lost misery, he had retreated with the loss of three front teeth, and Thompson's mule came out of an encounter with that iron-headed prodigy, with a sprained hind leg and a cut and swollen pastern. But these were the simple Arcadian days of the road between Big Bend and Reno, and progress and prosperity, alas, brought changes in their wake. It was already whispered that Mary ought to be going to school, and Mr. Amplac, still happily oblivious of the liberties taken with his name, as trustee of the public school at Duckville, had intimated that Mary's bohemian wanderings were a scandal to the county. She was growing up in ignorance, a dreadful ignorance of everything but the chivalry, the deep tenderness, the delicacy and unselfishness of the rude men around her, an obliviousness of faith in anything but the immeasurable bounty of nature toward her and her children. Of course there was a fierce discussion between the boys of the road, and the few married families of the settlement on this point. But, of course, progress and snivelization, as the boys chose to call it, 
triumphed. The projection of a railroad settled it. Robert Folks, promoted to a foremanship of a division of the line, was made to understand that his daughter must be educated. But the terrible question of Mary's family remained. No school would open its doors to that heterogeneous collection, and Mary's little heart would have broken over the rude dispersal or heroic burning of her children. The ingenuity of Jack Roper suggested a compromise. She was allowed to select one to take to school with her, the others were adopted by certain of her friends, and she was to be permitted to visit them every Saturday afternoon. The selection was a cruel trial, so cruel that, knowing her undoubted preference for her firstborn, misery, we would not have interfered for worlds. But in her unexpected choice of Johnny Dear, the most unworldly of us knew that it was the first glimmering of feminine tact, her first submission to the world of propriety that she was now entering. Johnny Dear was undoubtedly the most presentable, even more, there was an educational suggestion in its prominent, mapped-out phrenological organs. The adopted fathers were loyal to their trust. Indeed, for years afterward the blacksmith kept the iron-headed misery on a rude shelf like a shrine near his bunk. Nobody but himself and Mary ever knew the secret, stolen, and thrilling interviews that took place during the first days of their separation. Certain facts, however, transpired concerning Mary's equal faithfulness to another of her children. It is said that one Saturday afternoon, when the road manager of the new line was seated in his office at Reno, in private business discussion with two directors, a gentle tap was heard at the door. It was open to an eager little face, a pair of blue eyes, and a blue pinafore. To the astonishment of the directors, a change came over the face of the manager. Taking the child gently by the hand, he walked to his desk, on which the papers of the new line were scattered, and drew open a drawer from which he took out a large ninepin, extraordinarily dressed as a doll. The astonishment of the two gentlemen was increased at the following quaint colloquy between the manager and the child. "'She's doing remarkably well in spite of the trying weather, but I have had to keep her very quiet.' said the manager, regarding the ninepin critically. "'Yes,' said Mary, quickly. "'It's just the same with Johnny, dear. His cough is frightful at nights. But misery's all right. I've just been to see her.' "'There's a good deal of scarlet fever around,' continued the manager, with quiet concern, "'and we can't be too careful. But I shall take her for a little run down the line to-morrow.' The eyes of Mary sparkled and overflowed like blue water. Then there was a kiss, a little laugh, a shy glance at the two curious strangers, the blue pinafore fluttered away, and the colloquy ended. She was equally attentive in her care of the others, but the rag-baby Glory Anna, who had found a home in Jim Carter's cabin at the ridge, living too far for daily visits, was brought down regularly on Saturday afternoon to Mary's house by Jim, tucked in asleep in his saddle-bags, or riding gallantly before him on the horn of his saddle. On Sunday there was a dress-parade of all the dolls, which kept Mary in heart for the next week's desolation. But there came one Saturday and Sunday when Mary did not appear, and it was known along the road that she had been called to San Francisco to meet an aunt who had just arrived from the States.' 
It was a vacant Sunday to the boys, a very hollow, unsanctified Sunday, somehow, without that little figure. But the next Sunday, and the next, were still worse, and then it was known that the dreadful aunt was making much of Mary, and was sending her to a grand school, a convent at Santa Clara, where it was rumoured girls were turned out so accomplished that their own parents did not know them. But we knew that it was impossible to our Mary, and a letter which came from her at the end of the month, and before the convent had closed upon the blue pinafore, satisfied us, and was balm to our anxious hearts. It was characteristic of Mary. It was addressed to nobody in particular, and would, but for the prudence of the aunt, have been entrusted to the post-office open and undirected. It was but a single sheet, handed to us without a word by her father, but as we passed it from hand to hand, we understood it as if we had heard our lost playfellow's voice. "'There's more houses in Frisco than you can shake a stick at, and women's till you can't rest. But mules and jackasses ain't got no show, nor blacksmith's shops, which is not to be seen nowhere. Rabbits and squirrels, also bears and pamphers, is unknown and unforgotten on account of the streets and Sunday schools. Jim Roper, you order be very good to misery on account of my not being here, and not hearten your heart to her because she is top-heavy, which is untrue and simply an impient lie, like you allus make. I have a canary-bird what sings delightful, but isn't a yellow-hammer such as I know, as you'd think. Dear Mr. Montgomery, don't keep Gula and Umplak too much shut up in office drawers. It isn't good for his lungs and chest. But don't you ink his head, nother. You're as bad as the rest. Johnny, dear, you must be very kind to your adopted father. And you, Glory Anna, must love your kind Jimmy Carter very much for taking you hossback so often. I has been buggy-riding with an officer who has killed injuns real. I am coming back soon with great affection, so look out and mind. But it was three years before she returned, and this was her last and only letter. The adopted fathers of her children were faithful, however, and when the new line was opened, and it was understood that she was to be present with her father at the ceremony, they came, with a common understanding, to the station to meet their old playmate. They were ranged along the platform, poor Jack Roper a little overweighted with a bundle he was carrying on his left arm, and then a young girl in the freshness of her teens and the spotless purity of a muslin frock that although brief in skirt was perfect in fit, faultlessly booted and gloved, tripped from the train, and offered a delicate hand in turn to each of her old friends. Nothing could be prettier than the smile on the cheeks that were no longer sunburnt, nothing could be clearer than the blue eyes lifted frankly to theirs. And yet, as she gracefully turned away with her father, the faces of the four adopted parents were found to be as red and embarrassed as her own on the day that Yuba Bill drove up publicly with Johnny Deer on the box-seat. "'You weren't such a fool,' said Jack Montgomery to Roper, "'as to bring misery here with you.' "'I was.' said Roper, with a constrained laugh. "'And you?' He had just caught sight of the head of a ninepin peeping from the manager's pocket. The man laughed, and then the four turned silently away. Mary, 
had indeed come back to them, but not the mother of five. That's the end of Mother of Five by Bret Hart. Fünfeneiner Schote von Hans Christian Andersen. Diese Aufnahme ist zum fünfjährigen Jubiläum von LibriVox. Alle LibriVox-Aufnahmen sind lizenzfrei und in öffentlichem Besitz. Weitere Informationen und Hinweise zur Beteiligung an diesem Projekt gibt es bei LibriVox.org. Aufgenommen von Elli. Fünf in einer Schote von Hans Christian Andersen. Fünf Erbsen saßen der Reihe nach in einer Schote. Sie waren grün und die Schote war grün und deshalb glaubten sie, dass die ganze Welt grün wäre und das war völlig richtig. Die Sonne schien und erwärmte von außen die Schote. Der Regen machte sie rein und durchsichtig. Es war in ihr warm und schön, hell des Tages und finsteres Nachts, wie es sein mußte, und die Erbsen wurden, wie sie so dasaßen, immer größer und nachdenklicher, denn mit etwas mußten sie sich doch beschäftigen. »Sollen wir hier immer sitzen bleiben?« sagten sie, »wenn wir von dem langen Sitzen nur nicht hart werden. Es kommt uns fast so vor, als ob es auch da draußen noch etwas gibt. Eine Ahnung sagt uns das.« Und Wochen vergingen. Die Erbsen wurden gelb, und die Schote wurde gelb. »Die ganze Welt wird gelb.« sagten sie, und das durften sie wohl behaupten. Da empfanden sie einen Ruck in der Schote, sie wurde abgerissen, kam in Menschenhände und wurde mit mehreren anderen gefüllten Schoten in eine Rocktasche gesteckt. »Nun werden wir bald geöffnet werden«, sagten sie. »Ich möchte nur wissen, wer es von uns am weitesten bringen wird«, sagte die kleinste Erbse. »Geschehe, was du wolle«, sagte die größte. »Krach«, da platzte die Schote, und alle fünf Erbsen rollten in den hellen Sonnenschein hinaus. Sie lagen in einer Kinderhand. Ein kleiner Knabe hielt sie fest und sagte, die Erbsen wären gerade recht für seine Knallbüchse, und sogleich schoss er eine weg. »Nun fliege ich in die weite Welt. Halt mich, wenn du kannst, und dann war sie fort.« »Ich«, sagte die Zweite, »fliege gerade in die Sonne hinein. Das ist eine richtige Erbsenschote und sehr passend für mich.« Weg war sie. »Wir schlafen, wohin wir kommen«, sagen die beiden anderen, »aber wir werden schon noch vorwärts rollen.« und damit rollten sie erst auf die Erde, ehe sie in die Knallbüchse kamen, aber hinein kamen sie. »Wir bringen es am weitesten.« »Geschehe, was da wolle«, sagte die Letzte und wurde in die Höhe geschossen. Sie flog gegen das Brett unter dem Giebelstubenfenster, gerade in eine Ritze, die mit Moos und lockerer Erde ausgefüllt war, und das Moos schloss sich wärmend um sie. Da lag sie verborgen, aber nicht vergessen von Gott. »Geschehe, was da wolle«, sagte sie. Die kleine Giebelstube wurde von einer armen Frau bewohnt, die am Tag ausging, um allerlei schwere Arbeiten zu verrichten, denn Kräfte hatte sie und fleißig war sie, aber gleichwohl blieb sie arm. Zu Hause in der kleinen Stube lag währenddessen ihre halberwachsene einzige Tochter. Sie war zart und fein. Ein ganzes Jahr hatte sie zu Bett gelegen und schien weder leben noch sterben zu können. »Sie geht zu ihrer kleinen Schwester«, sagte die Frau. »Ich hatte nur zwei Kinder, aber da teilte der liebe Gott mit mir und nahm das eine zu sich.« nun möchte ich wohl gern das andere behalten, das mir noch übrig geblieben ist, aber er will sie wohl nicht getrennt lassen, und sie geht zu ihrer kleinen Schwester hinauf. Aber das kranke Mädchen starb nicht. Geduldig und still lag es den ganzen Tag da, während die Mutter verdienst abwesend war. Es war Frühling und noch früh am Morgen. Gerade als die Mutter auf ihre Arbeit gehen wollte, schien die Sonne gar freundlich zum kleinen Fenster hinein auf den Fußboden, und das kranke Mädchen richtete seinen Blick auf die unterste Scheibe, was ist doch das für Grünes dort neben der Scheibe? Es bewegt sich im Winde. Die Mutter trat an das Fenster und öffnete es halb. I, sagte sie, das ist wahrhaftig eine junge Erbse, die mit ihren grünen Blättchen hervorgesprossen ist. Wie ist sie hier in die Spalte hinaufgekommen? 
da hast du ja einen kleinen Garten, an dessen Anblick du dich weiden kannst. Das Bett der Kranken wurde näher an das Fenster gerückt, von wo sie die hervorsprossende Erbse erblicken konnte, und die Mutter ging auf Arbeit aus. »Mutter, ich glaube, ich erhole mich wieder«, sagte am Abend das kleine Mädchen. »Die Sonne hat heute so warm zu mir hereingeschienen. Die kleine Erbse gedeiht vortrefflich, und ich will auch gedeihen und mich im Sonnenscheine wieder erholen.« »Oh, dass es so geschehen möchte«, sagte die Mutter, doch glaubte sie nicht an die Möglichkeit. Allein neben das grüne Pflänzlein, welches ihrem Kinde so große Lebensgedanken eingeflößt hatte, steckte sie einen kleinen Stock, damit der Wind ihm nicht schaden könnte, und so gediehend wuchs es lustig. »Es setzt sogar Blüten an«, sagte die Mutter, und nun begann sie auch zu hoffen, dass ihr Kind sich wiederholen könne, denn es hatte sich des Morgens selbst im Bett aufgerichtet und mit strahlenden Augen seinen kleinen Erbsengarten, den die eine einzige Erbse bildete, betrachtet. In der nächsten Woche war die Kranke zum ersten Mal über eine Stunde auf, Draußen vom Fenster war eine große weißrote Erbsenblüte völlig aufgebrochen. Das Mädchen küßte die feinen Blätter ganz leise. Dieser Tag war ein Festtag für sie. Der liebe Gott hat sie selbst gepflanzt und dann gedeihen lassen, um dir, mein teures Kind, um mir damit Hoffnung und Freude zu geben, sagte die frohe Mutter und lächelte der Blume zu wie einem guten, gottgesandten Engel. Aber nun die anderen Erbsen? Ja, die, welche in die weite Welt hinausflog, halt mich, wenn du kannst, fiel in die Dachrinne und geriet in einen Taubenkopf wo sie lag wie Jonas in dem Walfischbauch. Die beiden Faulen brachten es gerade ebenso weit. Sie wurden ebenfalls von Tauben aufgepickt, und das heißt wenigstens einen soliden Nutzen schaffen. Aber die vierte, welche sich bis in die Sonne emporschwingen wollte, die fiel in den Rinnstein und lag Tage und Wochen darin, in dem schmutzigen Wasser, wo sie entsetzlich aufschwoll. »Ich werde prächtig dick«, sagte die Erbse, »ich werde noch platzen und weiter, glaube ich, kann es keine Erbse bringen, oder hat es je gebracht. Ich bin die ausgezeichnetste von den fünf aus derselben Schote. Und der Rinnstein gab dieser Ansicht seinen Beifall. Aber am Dachfenster stand das Mädchen mit leuchtenden Augen und mit Gesundheit auf den Wangen und faltete ihre Hände über der Erbsenblüte und dankte Gott für dieselbe. Ende von Fünf in einer Schote von Hans Christian Andersen The Indivisible Five by Eleanor H. Porter This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. At the ages of fifty-four and fifty, respectively, Mr. and Mrs. Wentworth found themselves possessed of a roomy, old-fashioned farmhouse near a thriving city, together with large holdings of lands, mortgages, and bank stock. At the same time they awoke to an unpleasant realization that many of their fellow-creatures were not so fortunate. "'James,' began Mrs. Wentworth, with some hesitation, one June day, "'I've been thinking, with all our rambling rooms and great big yards, and we with never a chick nor a child to enjoy them, I've been thinking. That is, I went by the orphan asylum in town yesterday, and saw the poor little mites, playing in that miserable brick oven they call a yard, and, well, don't you think we ought to have one, or maybe two, of them down here for a week or two, just to show them what summer really is? The man's face beamed. My dear, it's the very thing. We'll take two. They'll be company for each other. Only, he looked doubtfully at the stout little woman opposite, the worst of it will come on you, Mary. Of course, Hannah can manage the work part, I suppose, but the noise... Well, 
"'We'll ask for quiet ones,' he finished, with an air that indicated an entirely satisfactory solution of the problem. Life at Meadowbrook was a thing of peaceful mornings and long, drowsy afternoons, a thing of spotless order and methodical routine. In a long, childless marriage, Mr. and Mrs. Wentworth's days had come to be ordered with a precision that admitted of no frivolous deviations, and noise and confusion in the household machinery were the unforgivable offences. It was into this placid existence that Mr. and Mrs. Wentworth proposed to introduce two children from the orphan asylum. Before the week was out, a note was sent to the matron of the institution, and the prospective host and hostess were making their plans with unwanted excitement. "'We'll rise at six and breakfast at seven, began Mrs. Wentworth. "'And they must be in bed by eight o'clock,' supplemented her husband. "'I didn't say whether to send boys or girls.' and I forgot to say anything about their being quiet. But if they're boys, you can teach them gardening, James, and if they're girls, they can sew with me a good deal. Hmm. Yes. I really don't know what we shall do to entertain them. Perhaps they might like to read, suggested Mr. Wentworth, looking with some doubt at his big bookcases filled with heavy, calf-bound volumes. Of course, and they can walk in the garden and sit on the piazza, murmured Mrs. Wentworth happily. In the orphan asylum that same evening there was even greater excitement. Mrs. Wentworth's handwriting was not of the clearest, and her request for two children had been read as ten, and since the asylum, which was only a small branch of a much larger institution, had recently been depleted until it contained but five children, the matron was sorely perplexed to know just how to fill so generous an order. It ended in her writing an apologetic note to Mrs. Wentworth, and dispatching it the next morning by the hand of the eldest girl, Tilly, who was placed at the head of four other jubilant children, brushed, scrubbed, and admonished into a state of immaculate primness. At half-past nine o'clock the driver of the big carryall set five squirming children on to their feet before the front door at Meadowbrook and rang the bell. "'Here you are,' he called gaily, as Hannah opened the door. "'I've washed my hands of em. Now they're yours.' and he drove briskly out of the yard. Hannah neither moved nor spoke. She simply stared. "'Here's a note,' began Tilly, advancing shyly, "'for Miss Wentworth.' Mechanically Hannah took the note and, scarcely realizing what she was doing, threw open the door of the parlor, that parlor which was sacred to funerals, weddings, and the minister's calls. The children filed in slowly, and deposited themselves with some skill on the slippery haircloth chairs and sofa. Hannah, still dazed, went upstairs to her mistress. "'From the asylum, ma'am,' she said faintly, holding out the note. Mrs. Wentworth's eyes shone. "'Oh, the children! Where are they, Hannah?' "'In the parlor, ma'am.' "'The parlor? Why, Hannah, the parlor is no place for those two children.' Mrs. Wentworth started towards the door. Hannah coughed and uptilted her chin. "'They ain't two, ma'am. There's as much as half a dozen of them.' "'What?' "'There is, ma'am.' "'Why, Hannah, what?' The lady tore open the note with shaking fingers and read, "'My dear madam, you very generously asked for ten children, but I hope you will pardon me for sending only five. That is all we have with us now, owing to several recent adoptions from our ranks.' You know we are never very large, being only a branch of the Hollingsworth Asylum. The children were so crazy, though, at the idea of a trip to the country, 
that I am sure each child will have fun enough, and make noise enough also, I fear, for two. So in the end you may think you've got your ten children after all. You must be fond of children to be willing to give so many a two-weeks vacation. But you don't know what a lot of good you are doing. If you could have seen the children when I read them your note, you would have been well repaid for all your trouble. I wish there were more like you in this world. Respectfully yours, Amanda Higgins. Hannah, faltered Mrs. Wentworth, dropping into her chair. They didn't read my note right. They... they've actually sent us the whole asylum. Well, it looks like it, downstairs, returned Hannah grimly. Sure enough, they are downstairs, and I must go to them, murmured Mrs. Wentworth, rising irresolutely to her feet. I... I'll go down. I'll have to send all but two home, of course, she finished as she left the room. Downstairs she confronted five pairs of eyes, shining out at her from the gloom. "'Good morning, children,' she began, trying to steady her voice. "'There is—er—I—' "'Well,' she stopped helplessly, and a small girl slid to the floor from her perch on the sofa and looked longingly toward the hall. "'Please, ma'am, there's a kitty out there. May I get it?' she asked timidly. "'Please, have you got a dog, too?' piped up a boy's voice. "'And chicken and little pigs? They said you had,' interposed a brown-eyed girl from the corner. "'And there's hammocks and swings, maybe,' broke in Tilly. "'And please, ma'am, mayn't we go outdoors and begin right away? Two weeks is an awful short time, you know, for all we want to do,' she finished earnestly. Four pairs of feet came down to the floor with a thump, and eight small boots danced a tattoo of impatience on the parlor carpet. The small girl was already out in the hall, and on her knees to the cat. "'Why, yes, that is, you see, there was a mistake, I—' Mrs. Wentworth stopped suddenly, for as soon as the yes had left her lips, the children had fled like sheep. She stepped to the front door and looked out. A boy was turning somersaults on the grass. Three girls had started a game of tag. Watching all this with eager eyes was a boy of eight— one foot tightly bound into an iron brace. It was on this child that Mrs. Wentworth's eyes lingered the longest. Poor little fellow. Well, he shall be one of the two, she murmured, as she hurried out to Hannah. When they go in, ma'am, began Hannah, with an assurance born of long service. I... I haven't told them. I... Well, I waited for Mr. Wentworth, confessed her mistress hastily, then with some dignity. They can just as well have to-day outdoors, anyway. It was nearly noon when Mr. Wentworth drove into the yard, gave his horse into the care of Bill, the man of all work, and hurried into the house. "'Mary! Mary! Where are you?' he called sharply. Never before had James Wentworth broken the serene calm of his home with a voice like that. "'Yes, dear, I'm here, in the dining-room.' Mrs. Wentworth's cheeks were flushed, her hair was disordered, and her neck-bow was untied. But she was smiling happily as she hovered over a large table laden with good things and set for six. "'You can sit down with them, James,' she exclaimed. "'I'm going to help Hannah serve them.' "'Mary, what in the world does this mean? The yard is overrun with screaming children. Have they sent us the whole asylum?' he demanded. Mrs. Wentworth laughed hysterically. "'That's exactly what they have done, dear. They took my two for a ten, and—' 
and they did the best they could to supply my wants. Well, but why don't you send them home? We can't. Yes, yes, I know, dear, interrupted the woman hastily, the happy look gone from her eyes. After dinner I am, that is, you may send all but two home. I thought I'd let them play a while. Humph, ejaculated the man. Send them home? I should think so, he muttered, as his wife went to call the children to dinner. What a wonderful meal that was, and how the good things did vanish down those five hungry throats. The man at the head of the table looked on in dumb amazement, and he was still speechless when, after dinner, five children set upon him and dragged him out to see the bird's nest behind the barn. "'And we found the pigs and the chickens, mister, just as they said we would,' piped up Tommy eagerly, as they hurried along. "'And a teeny little baby cow, too,' panted the smaller girl, "'and I fed him. "'Well, I guess you couldn't have fed him if I hadn't to held him with the rope,' crowed Bobby. "'Or if I hadn't scared him with my stick,' cut in Tilly. "'I guess you ain't the only pebble on the beach, Bobby Mac.' "'Good heavens!' groaned Mr. Wentworth under his breath. "'And I have got to keep two of these little hoodlums for a whole fortnight?' "'Er, children,' he said aloud, after the bird's nest had been duly admired. "'Er, suppose we go and, uh, read?' Into the house trooped the five chattering boys and girls in the wake of an anxious, perplexed man. Some minutes later the children sat in a stiff row along the wall, while the man, facing them, read aloud from a ponderous calf-bound volume on the fundamental causes of the Great Rebellion. For some time Mr. Wentworth read, without pausing to look up, his sonorous voice filling the room, and his mind wholly given to the subject in hand. Then he raised his eyes, and almost dropped the book in his hand. Tommy, the cripple, sat alone. "'Why, where—what?' stammered Mr. Wentworth. "'They've gone out to the barn, mister,' explained Tommy, cheerfully pointing to the empty chairs. "'Oh,' murmured Mr. Wentworth faintly, as he placed the book on the shelf. "'I, uh, I think we won't read any more.' "'Come on, then, let's go to the barn,' cried Tommy, and to the barn they went. There were no fundamental causes of the Great Rebellion in the barn, but there were fundamental causes of lots of other things, and Mr. Wentworth found that now his words were listened to with more eagerness, and before he knew it he was almost as excited as were the children themselves. They were really a very intelligent lot of youngsters, he told himself, and the prospect of having two of them for guests did not look so formidable after all. From the barn they went to the garden, from the garden to the pond, from the pond back to the yard. Then they all sat down under the apple-trees, while Mr. Wentworth built them a miniature boat. In days long gone by James Wentworth had loved the sea, and boat-making had been one of his boyhood joys. At four o'clock Mrs. Wentworth called from the house. "'James, will you come here a minute, please?' A slow red stole over the man's face as he rose to his feet. The red was a deep crimson by the time he faced his wife. "'How are you going to send them home, dear?' she asked. He shook his head. "'But it's four o'clock, and we ought to be thinking of it. Which two are you going to keep?' "'I—I I don't know,' he acknowledged. For some unapparent reason Mrs. Wentworth's spirits rose, but she assumed an air of severity. "'Why, James, haven't you told them?' she demanded. "'Mary, I couldn't. I've been trying to all afternoon. Er, you tell them.' "'Do,' he urged desperately. "'I can't. 
playing with them as I have. Suppose we keep them all, then, she hazarded. Mary. Oh, I can manage it. I've been talking with Hannah. I saw how things were going with you. His features relaxed into a shamefaced smile. And Hannah says her sister can come to help. And we've got beds enough with the cots in the attic. He drew a deep breath. Then we won't have to tell them, he exclaimed. No, we won't have to tell them, she laughed, as she turned back into the house. What a fortnight that was at Meadowbrook. The mornings, no longer peaceful, were full of rollicking games, and the long, drowsy afternoons became very much awake with gleeful shouts. The spotless order fled before the bats and balls and books and dolls that Mr. Wentworth brought home from the store, and the methodical routine of the household was shattered to atoms by daily picnics and frequent luncheons of bread and butter. No longer were the days ordered with a precision that admitted of no frivolous deviations, for who could tell in the morning how many bumped heads, cut fingers, bruised noses, and wounded hearts would need sympathetic attention before night? And so it went on until the evening before the two weeks were completed. Then, after the children were abed and asleep, the man and his wife talked it over. "'Well, this ends to-morrow, I suppose. You must be tired, Mary. It's been a hard time for you, my dear.' he began. "'Not a bit of it, James,' she demurred. "'Hannah and Betsy have done all the work, and you've been with the children so much I've not felt their care at all.' The man stirred uneasily. "'Well, I—I I wanted to relieve you as much as possible,' he exclaimed, wondering if she knew how many boats he had built for the boys, and how many jackknives he had broken in the process. "'Do you know, I think I shall be actually lonely when they are gone,' declared Mrs. Wentworth, without looking up. The man threw a sharp glance at his wife. "'So shall I,' he said. "'James, I've been wondering. Couldn't we—adopt one of them?' she suggested, trying to make it appear as though the thought had but just entered her head. Again the man gave his wife a swift glance. "'Why, we—might, I suppose,' he returned, hoping that his hesitation would indicate that the idea was quite new to him instead of having been almost constantly in his thoughts for a week. "'We might take two. Company for each other, you know.' She looked at him out of the corner of her eye. "'Hm,' he agreed pleasantly. "'The only trouble is the selecting, James.' "'Yes, that is a drawback,' murmured the man, with a vivid recollection of a certain afternoon under the apple-trees. "'Well, I'll tell you,' Mrs. Wentworth leaned forward in sudden animation. "'Tomorrow,' You pick out the one you want, and ask him, or her, to go into the parlor for a few minutes at nine o'clock in the morning, and I will do the same. Well, maybe, he began a little doubtfully, but— And if there are two, and you aren't real sure which you want, just ask both of them to go, and we'll settle it together, later, she finished. To this, with some measure of content, her husband agreed. The next morning, at ten minutes before nine, Mrs. Wentworth began her search— with no hesitation she accosted the little cripple. "'Tommy, dear, I want you to go into the parlor for a few minutes. Take your book in there and read, and I'll come very soon, and tell you what I want.' Tommy obeyed at once, and Mrs. Wentworth sighed in relief. At that moment Tilly came into the garden. What a dear little woman those two weeks of happiness had caused Tilly to become! How much she loved Tommy, and what care she took of him! Really, it was a shame to separate them. They ought to be brought up together.' Perhaps Mr. Wentworth wouldn't find any child that he wanted. Anyway, she believed she should send Tilly in, 
at a venture. A moment later Tilly was following in Tommy's footsteps. On the piazza step sat Bobby, a homely, unattractive Bobby, crying. "'Why, my dear,' remonstrated Mrs. Wentworth. "'Tommy's gone. I can't find him,' sobbed the boy. Mrs. Wentworth's back straightened. "'Of course,' Bobby cried. "'No one was so good to him as Tommy was. No one seemed to care for him but Tommy. Poor, homely Bobby. He had a hard row to hoe. He—' "'But she couldn't take Bobby. Of course not. She had Tommy and Tilly already. Still—' Mrs. Wentworth stooped and whispered a magic word in Bobby's ear, and the boy sprang to his feet and trotted through the hall to the parlor door. "'I don't care,' muttered Mrs. Wentworth recklessly. "'I couldn't bear to leave him alone out here. I can settle it later.' Twice she had evaded her husband during the last fifteen minutes. Now, at nine o'clock, the appointed time, they both reached the parlor door. Neither one could meet the other's eyes, and with averted faces they entered the room together." Then both gave a cry of amazement. In the corner, stiff, uncomfortable, and with faces that expressed puzzled anxiety, sat five silent children. Mrs. Wentworth was the first to recover presence of mind. "'There, there, dears, it's all right,' she began a little hysterically. "'You can call it a little game we were playing. You may all run outdoors now.' As the last white apron fluttered through the door, she dropped limply into a chair. "'James, what in the world are we going to do?' she demanded. "'Give it up,' said the man, with his hands in his pocket. James Wentworth's vocabulary had grown twenty years younger in the last two weeks. "'But really, it's serious.' "'It certainly is.' "'But what shall we do?' The man took his hands from his pockets and waved them in a manner that would indicate entire irresponsibility. "'We might end it as we did two weeks ago, and keep the whole lot of them.' she proposed merrily. "'Well, why don't you?' he asked calmly. "'James!' His face grew red with a shame-faced laugh. "'Well, there are families with five children in them, and I guess we could manage it,' he asserted in self-defense. She sat up and looked at him with amazement. "'Surely we have money enough, and I don't know how we could spend it better,' he continued rapidly, "'and with plenty of help for you.' There's nothing to hinder turning ourselves into an orphan asylum, if we want to, he added triumphantly. Oh, James, could we? Do you think? she cried, her eyes shining with a growing joy. Tommy, and Tilly, and all? Oh, we will, we will, and, and, we'll never have to choose any more, will we, James? she finished fervently. End of The Indivisible Five by Eleanor H. Porter Read by Marianne Spiegel in Chicago, Illinois Fünf Jahre sind im Kerker schon vergangen Von Luise Otto Dies ist eine Aufnahme zum fünfjährigen Jubiläum von LibriVox. Alle LibriVox-Aufnahmen sind lizenzfrei und in öffentlichem Besitz. Weitere Informationen und Hinweise zur Beteiligung an diesem Projekt gibt es bei LibriVox.org Fünf Jahre sind im Kerker schon vergangen. Zum fünften Mal kehrt dein Geburtstag wieder. Ich kam zu dir mit Sehnen und mit Bangen und tief beschämt senk ich mein Auge nieder. Vor deiner Herrlichkeit in Schmach und Leiden, vor deiner Kraft im Dulden und Entbehren. Du sprichst von Liebe nur, von Seligkeiten, wo andere sich in Schmerz und Zorn verzehren. Ein Gitter fiel, doch eines ist geblieben, 
uns trennend, die wir ewig doch verbunden, die wir ganz eins im Streben und im Lieben, wie Tat und Wort seit Jahres bekunden. O lass mich dir die Hand durchs Gitter reichen, du neigst dich nieder, küsst sie süß und heiß, dazu des Blickes holdes Liebeszeichen, kein anderes braucht's, da ich so froh dich weiß. Sieh, deiner Küsse und des Gitters Spuren sind beinahe Hand so sichtbar eingeprägt, wie Nägelmale, wie auf Frühlingsfluren ein Quell hervorbricht und drin Wunden schlägt. Von Nägelmalen wissen wir zu sagen, von Quellen, die als helle Tränen flossen, doch auch von Blüten, die wir in uns tragen, die aus den liebesselgen Herzen sprossen. Ende von Fünf Jahre sind im Kerker schon vergangen von Luise Otto Aufgenommen von Julia Niedermeyer.